Welcome to today's episode of The Dream in Code Podcast with discussions on software and web development, technology, and IT trends. Here is your host, Dan Delamarski. Everyone, this is Dreaming Code Podcast Episode 7. So today, our guest is Brett McNamara. Uh, hi, Brett. Hey, how's it going? Good. So, Brett, tell us about your job or role where you work on. I am technically a, a DBA where I work, but um, the job tends to be supporting custom software, writing custom reports, maintaining, updating, backup databases. You know, we're generally where many many hats where I'm at. So, you know, you name it, we've done it. You know, script kitty stuff, big enterprise, you know, Oracle stuff, whatever is required, we, we tend to have uh, a small staff that takes care of it. So, Brett is a member of Dreaming Code. So, Brett, what's your name on Dreaming Code? Above Guy. So, what's the story behind the, that username? I used it when I was camping in a yurt. Uh, many years ago uh, with a Mongolian reenactment group. And uh, Bavgai is actually uh, Mongolian for bear. And it turns out that uh, at the time there was like zero Mongolians on the web. So it was a pretty unique name and you know, it was reasonable to stick with it. Uh, I've since run into a few. I occasionally get junk mail from Mongolia that I can't read. But you know, uh-huh. for the most part, it's been pretty useful. <laughs> so what platform or language do you use for development? Primarily, we're a Microsoft shop, which means Visual Studio is king. So we do mostly Visual Studio, um, which means the databases are mostly a SQL Server, which gets along best with Microsoft stuff. Well, basically, that if you're a Microsoft shop, it, it behooves you to use Microsoft tools for the most part. Um, and we've tried to put in, you know, other things like uh, open source stuff, and, and it tends to be kind of an uphill battle with people who are used to using Microsoft. So we, we go mostly Microsoft. That's kind of where, if if you're a Windows shop, that's kind of where you're at. You don't want to touch any of the uh, scary Unix stuff. So You're familiar with Unix stuff? Oh, sure, yeah. We, um, we've actually managed to sneak a lot of it in uh, for security purposes. A lot of the best intrusion detection and intrusion prevention tools tend to be uh, Unix-y. So, uh, and we, we do have a few... Um, you know, a few little virtual machines that are running Linux. So we've, we've gotten some of it in there. Well, you mentioned the Microsoft stack. So what platform-specific tools or libraries are you using in your, like, daily development? Honestly, if, if you're going to develop for Microsoft, the only reasonable choice is probably Visual Studio. And that has most of the tools you'd want. I mean, it has, you know, you've got C-sharp as your basic language. Everything runs on top of .NET. We use WinForms, which is, you know, just your basic Windows application. We use ASP.NET with C Sharp as the, as the language, which is your, you know, your basic web application. Uh, and then, you know, pretty much it's, it's standard client-server stuff. You connect the databases and all the rest. One of the things we use that's uh, very Microsoft-y is, uh, since it is an enterprise, we have Active Directory. So we try to use Active Directory for authentication whenever, whenever possible. Well, you mentioned C Sharp. Mm-hmm. Are you using like any other .NET language like VB.NET or F Sharp, which kind of just starts to pick up momentum? The thing is, is, is we have programmers who are comfortable in C Sharp. For .NET, it doesn't make a lot of difference what you use as long as you know all your assemblies hook up together. For the most part, it's uh, 
is considered good form for everything to sort of be in the same language. We'll use other things if someone wrote it in something else, but uh, you know, we try to stick to the same language just to have uh, sort of a unified base. You mentioned you use uh, WinForms. Do you mm-hmm. think WinForms is a, I don't know, well, there's WPF now coming to the scene, and a lot of sure. people focus on WPF, on Windows Presentation Foundation, and people say it's going to, re- I actually think it's going to replace WinForms eventually. What do you think about this? Microsoft is, um, you know, is excellent at giving developers uh, lots of tools to do their job. And my feeling on the WPF uh, and all those style of tools is they're just another way of getting ultimately to the same end product. You know, from the user's perspective, it doesn't matter what you develop in as long as it looks like a Windows application. From the developer's perspective, you know, the tools determine how you're going to approach the project. My, my feeling is, is that the, the Windows presentation layer kind of stuff is, it's almost an extension of Visual Basic. You don't have to necessarily know all the ins and outs of going into the form and writing a lot of code. You can sort of be at this layer of abstraction. You know, a lot of the stuff that they're bringing out, a lot of the, you know, the, the MVC stuff and the presentation layer and all this sort of stuff where they have sort of an XML abstraction layer allows allows people to do things without necessarily getting down and dirty with the code, which is, it's fine if your level of expertise is is sort of just entry, but if you're used to programming, it shouldn't really matter what tools you're using. In the context of ASP.NET, are you using MVC? No, we're still using traditional uh, ASP.NET. I have one application where we got some, uh, some jQuery snuck in there, but for the most part, you know, it's standard ASP. It's it's not uh, not anything real involved. We we've sort of moved away from using uh, you know using some of the drag and drop stuff. We do write our some of our own controls and things, but it, it's you know it's nothing complex because you still have people out uh, in the plant who have things like uh, we still have some IE six wandering around. You know, so you yeah. get you get inventive and stuff breaks. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> You mentioned two domains, Windows applications and web applications. They're kind of like two separate fields. Well, unified under a .NET framework. So what exactly was your learning path to get where you are now? Well, I've, I've mentioned this before. I actually uh, got a degree in English literature. I, I minored in computer science, but when I, when I left school, you know, the, the minor in computer science involved uh, writing stuff in Pascal and... Um, a little uh, IBM uh, 360 mainframe, I think it was at the time, I mean, uh, assembly language. I mean, for the most part, all the stuff that we use today didn't exist. And so when I started working, it's like, what tools do we use to get to where we're going? So I, I actually used VB, you know, Visual Basic version 1, you know, ah. because it, it was given to us. I, I, I've used... Uh, you know, I wrote stuff in, in Quick Basic. Uh, I wrote stuff in, you know, everything that's available to you. My One of the first programs I wrote for the company I worked for was in uh, probably Visual Basic 3 with an access back end. And, you know, whatever whatever tools are available, you use. Uh, we, we started out with Oracle Database after we'd previously used Sybase. We used, um, we used Oracle Forms and Oracle Reports. You know, whatever tools make the most sense or what you use. So my learning path has pretty much been uh, the company has decided to use these tools, to use these products. Uh, we need you to make stuff work with them. And so you go out and you learn it. <laughs> so how did you learn all this kind of stuff? Like were those books, whatever? 
to some extent, it, in most business environments, if someone comes to you and says, we're going to produce a product um, that needs to do this, and we're going to use this, these tools, there are two styles of people who are going to be in the room. One, one group is going to say, okay, I need training. Send me to classes. Buy me the books. I want everything done for me. I want everything handed to me. Uh, and then you know, the other group is kind of going to say, all right, let me go research it and figure out what I need to learn and what I need to do, and I'll tell you what you need to do to train me. Uh, and I tend to be in the latter group. I, I like to go and figure out what, uh, you know, what I need to study and what, uh, what I need to learn to get the job done. And for the most part, you know, if you understand the fundamentals of programming, you can kind of be a self-learner. And if you're working on a project where you have the luxury of time, you can sort of use that project as your, you know, as your learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and very often when you're working on a project that's where the technology is new, you're given a little more, uh, you know, a little more slack, you know, Hey, I've just, I've just started using this. I've never used it before coming mm-hmm. to break. And, you know, so, um, and in, in fact, I've seen consultants over the years who's kind of done the same thing. You know, you present someone with, uh, with something that they've never seen before and they're like, okay, yes, we can do this. And you, you get the impression that, uh, you're paying the people who are supposed to be the experts to learn what they're supposed to be experts in. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's fairly universal. I think most people you talk to who, uh, have worked with computers for any length of time will say that their skill set has changed to adapt to what they've been given. And very often that adaptation involves a, a lot of self-learning. You know, if, if you if you wait around for the classes, sometimes they're simply not available. You have to do the project now and get it done now. Yeah. You've been a member of Dreaming Co. for quite a while. Do you think that online learning resources are enough to learn a platform or a language from A to Z, just to become a uh, professional developer, like only relying on tutorials, uh, snippets, videos, whatever you can find online. The the only requirement to be a professional developer is that someone pays you to do it. So um, <laughs> as long as you're competent in what you need to do, um, you're fine. I, I absolutely believe that all the online stuff is all you need. Um, you know, it used to be we'd have to go and get the books and pull through the books and go through all the theory. But if you know the theory of how computers work, you know, if you understand the basic building blocks of programming, then a new language or a new technology is just an extension of what you already know. Um, it's absolutely possible to learn any, anything that's out there as far as technology-wise from the online resources. I mean, if you want... I remember when Java first came out, and it was like, oh, this is really cool. It's a language for the web, and write one to use anywhere, and all the rest of the, uh, you know, the promotional material. But at the time, when it first came out, the only way you were going to be a Java programmer is if you actually went online and looked at the Java offerings. You, know, you had to go to Sun's website and read up what was available. You know, you, it wasn't until maybe six months later that you would actually see oh, here's a company that offers training in Java. Oh, here are the books that, you know, that represent the, the Java, mm-hmm. you know, the, the actual Java kind of in, in Bible. And it wasn't until years after that, you know, now it's actually a standard in universities that people learn Java. But it, when technology first comes out, there's no, you know, there's no simple, I'm going to go sign up and take a course. If you want to use the new stuff, you got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that way you did you personally learn a lot of stuff online oh yeah i learned uh well honestly i went to uh, i went to a couple of oracle classes for java um mm-hmm. 
when we when we switched to uh, C sharp, I don't think I ever went to a C sharp class. Uh, probably until after a couple projects were in the hole. Um, did I've done uh, I've done Python stuff at work. I never, you know, no one's ever going to send you to a Python class unless mm. you're a unless you're a Linux kind of shop. Um, uh, let's see. I went to one SQL Server class, but it was all on uh, it was all on uh, what was it? Uh, you know, system management, it actually had nothing to do with T-SQL. So pretty much everything I learned about SQL Server was sort of self-taught. I mean, I would say probably 80% of the stuff I deal with today is, is well, I'd say 90% of what I deal with today is self-taught, and most of that is online. Um, I mean, I have the books. They're on the shelf. They look nice. You know, I, I've been, been to the classes. I, I have little certificates that if I wanted to, I could stick them on the wall and people could go ooh and ah, but... Really, all they prove is that you paid to go there, that you didn't actually learn anything. So, um, you know, I think I, I can't imagine why an online resource would be any any worse than any other form of training. The only time it would be different is if you actually have what they call instructor-led courses. Mm-hmm. It is usually in between the the actual courses, in between the actual class session, you can go up to the instructor and pick their brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to me, the most useful thing I told you, I took an online, uh, yeah. or I'm, I'm sorry, I took an Oracle course uh, on Java, and I actually ran into one of the technology guys who was working at Oracle at the time, who reckoned the future of Oracle was in servlets and middle tier, and he was one of the guys who actually uh, was involved in their entry into the technology. So you know, to be able to talk to someone who's doing that is is a tremendous advantage, you know? and that's. To me, the advantage of actually taking a class with a human being is that you sort of get to veer off of the standard list of things and ask questions that are important to you. Um, but, you know, if, if you can't have a human who can answer those questions, if you're willing to research them themselves, you can usually find the answers. So, mm. so since we got to Oracle, you're an enterprise developer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what exactly is enterprise development when someone says enterprise what they're talking about is is programs that essentially run in a business environment and it can be as small as just you know one one work site or it can be as as broad reaching as you know you have a, a site in in uh, Chicago and a site in LA and a site in New York and they all have to talk to one another um, when I mentioned enterprise what I was thinking of is my little place which is essentially um, a utility which has a number of uh, it's a it's a treatment plant that has a number of different buildings and maybe 500 users and at any given time you're going to be deploying software that has to run on multiple versions of Windows and multiple versions of you know of of client uh, software and generally has to talk to the rest of the architecture of the enterprise so you know if you have something that's a uh, you know, the first thing you're going to be asked is, okay, how do people log into this program? You say, oh, well, we've already got Active Directory up or we've all get, already got LDAP up. Um, they can use their standard network login. So now you have to write a program that has the ability to talk to the rest of the network. You know, and, and then everything is a, a function of permissions. You know, how, how does this person talk to this program? Then it's like, okay, now we've got this program and it needs to talk to this database. So now they need to be able to get to the database. Oh, and we'd like the program to have uh, some knowledge of our current financial system. So now you need to talk to a financial system, you know, and 
only people who are in this department can use this program. So now you need to go and find out what the credentials are for someone in that department, which may not be an active directory. It may be in an HR system, you know, and everything that involves enterprise programming involves not just writing a program that is going to be used on disparate systems, but writing a program that has to be aware of all the stuff that's already in place. And sometimes the stuff that's in place is, it's old stuff. You know, I, I've, I've written things that where you had to write a web service to talk to a, uh, to talk to a mainframe application because nothing else was smart enough to do it, but your database could talk to a web service. You know, you, you, you come up with these sort of oddball solutions to talk to different pieces. Uh, and then when you're, t when you write interfaces, you tend to, uh, you, it, it's called throwing stuff over the fence where you write an interface and it sends data to something and you hope it got there, but sometimes you're not sure it did. And, those are the kind of things that you run into when you're when you've got lots of different pieces and they all have to sort of work together. Now you mentioned the basic like the structure wise differences. Now from the development perspective, how is enterprise development different from client development, like for regular desktop or web development? Like when you look at practices you apply for development? Well you really Primarily, you have to be aware of the other pieces that are in place. For the most part, any program that has any meaning whatsoever has to talk to a database. Mm -hmm. um, so now the database you use is, comes into question. You know, do we do we leverage something that exists already, or do we you know do we deploy a new database? And of course, that's generally a cost. Um, and then everything sort of proceeds from there. You know, when you talk about enterprise development, it's not just the technical resources, but it's also the people that you deal with, you know, so you'll end up, uh, if I, if I need to deploy something and it has to talk to, uh, say a laboratory, now I have to liaise with the lab and find out what the laboratory's needs are. And then it has to go to a financial department. So now you have to talk to the financial guys, find out what they're talking about. And so there's a lot of, you know, in addition to actual development, you actually have to have some human interaction. And I think that's where you know, that, that's where you go above and beyond, gee, I just want to be a programmer, because now you actually have to sit in a room with, you know, with guys who are department heads and, you know, guys in suits who are telling you earnestly what they need for a project and really have no computer experience and don't really know what they need. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that you can't really get taught. It's have to, something you have to sort of experience and go from there. When did you start developing enterprise applications? Well, when you first get hired, I mean, you know, you, you start you start working at a job, and and your experience is I've I've written programs, I know how to be a programmer, I'm good at programming stuff, and you write your first program, and 20 people across uh, you know a wide range of locations start using it, and you start getting the phone calls, mm -hmm. and the phone calls are as simple as, you know, I've never touched the computer before, and my boss just told me to log in. How do I log in? Um, or it could be hey, I tried to run this and it didn't work. And suddenly you find out that the stuff you started using um, doesn't work on a particular you know, version of Windows or it needs a particular library that you thought everyone had and no one had, you know, or half the people had, so they have to go out and install it. So now you have to run around to different sites. Um, and, you know, all the things that you take for granted as an individual developer uh, come into play in the same way that if you were a software developer who produces a product and put and tries to sell it, or even if you're an open source developer, all of a sudden, all the clients, all the users of your software start telling you things that you never considered. Mm. You know, the, well, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't have this installed? Or why are you, you know, why are you trying to do this? Or, you know, 
what do you mean you need to shut this down in order for this to work? You know, you, all these things that um, in your own little ivory tower, when you're writing something, you never have to think about. Suddenly you're now faced with dealing with those things. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something, like I said, it comes from experience that you suddenly realize I have a broader, uh, you have a broader audience than I originally anticipated. And in many cases, the people who are using your software in a business, they don't want to use it. And when they call you up, they're pissed off because they tried to log into the thing that someone ordered them to log into, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not working. And they didn't want to do the work in the first place. <laughs> uh, so they're they're either going to call you up pissed off, or they're not going to call you all and blame you for not being able to do it. You know, and that's that that's part of just dealing with people. And for the most part, people who like to program computers don't want to deal with people. We want to sit down and write code and have fun. You know, and and now you're forced to interact and sort of justify that. Yes, it worked when it when it went out the door. What's your problem? And you can't say that to someone. So you say, okay, explain to me what isn't clear. And and that's you know that's part of being support. If you write a program and you put it out there and you're at a in a like a software development company, you get the help desk to to shield you. Mm-hmm. If you're in a in a small business or even a fairly large business, people will call you, and the, it, and you say, well, call the help desk and tell them. No, no, no. We know that you wrote it. We're going to blame you. <laughs> and you can't hide. You have to go deal with people. So that's you know, that's a, a different sort of environment. It's not something that, uh, you know, it's not like a regular development environment where where you can sort of hide behind the, uh, the help desk. You have to be there and, and support it. So. Mm. so what was your first step in enterprise development? I wrote a, wow, this sounds like ancient history, before the Internet. I wrote a document management system where we had a bunch of uh, startup and shutdown and lockdown procedures for various uh, uh, various tools across the plant. We have big tubes that have to be shut down, and people go down into these tubes, and everything has a documentation. The documentation kind of reads like, you know, open door of car, go into car, turn car mm. on kind of thing. Um, so we had this system that previously was a bunch of word docs and I'm not talking like word in windows. I'm like, like ancient word where you log in and it looks like, uh, you know, you're in a console app. Uh, so it was all these word docs and we put them all together and we put them in a database, uh, and we wrote a visual basic front end and presumably everyone who had access to this program could click on it and access their documentation and print it up and everyone would be happy. And, um, the, database that was chosen at the time because it was what I was using on my desktop was uh, Microsoft Access. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft Access is not a u- multi-user database. It never was. It never will be. <laughs> and uh, it's not something you necessarily realize when you're just, it's just one or two of you, but suddenly when five or six or ten people are trying to use it and you get those database locks and bad things are happening, uh, you re- realize you went with the wrong... Uh, wrong technology. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, my first introduction to, uh, enterprise deployment is suddenly having guys out in the plant, you know, with hard hats on screaming at you saying that I need to print this out for my guys right now. And it's not working. And you know, now you have to hustle and figure out why it's not working. And that was, uh, that was my first one. I think, um, I, I wrote something that uh, dealt with, uh, in fact, it's being used right now. I'm still getting phone calls, uh, uh, dealing with uh, preparation for the budget for the for the next year, and it started out as a bunch of Lotus spreadsheets, and we had consultants set up these wonderful spreadsheets for us. And um, you find out that when people enter data into spreadsheets, they do it however they feel like. And when you try to have to gather up the information on the other end, 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not where you expected, and the spreadsheets don't add up properly. And so we we ended up writing an application for it, and it's gone through several generations. It started out; it was an Oracle form, it was a Visual Basic app. It was an Oracle Forms app. It was a it was a Java servlet app. Uh, it's currently it got rewritten again last year. It is now finally a a an ASP.NET application on Microsoft SQL Server with a with a middle tier that I wrote and the the whole web front end a bunch of other programmers got to write so i didn't have to deal with that part and uh you know these things sort of uh evolve the the biggest thing i could say to someone who's working uh, at a company is never believe that the program you're writing right now mm-hmm. is the temporary version that they told you it's going to be i have stuff that's been lurking around for like 10 years that i never thought would run more than like 10 weeks and <laughs> if it doesn't break, it'll stay there, and then you'll get calls for it, and you won't even remember what it was. So. Yeah, you know, like that reminds me of that one time when I saw, I think it was somewhere online, where the funny code comments, and there's like this comment that says like, uh, it's some day, I think it's like 2006, and it says like temporary code, and then there is like the next comment in 2010. It's like, yeah, right, temporary. Oh yeah, all the systems that are out there, you, if you look at stuff that someone wrote and put out in the field, I would say at least half of it, the guy who put it out there said, well, you know, this is just a patch because they're going to go buy a a whole system for this. And Mm -hmm. and there's lots of stuff out there, reports and and little pieces of code and little programs that like someone will pull up to say, print out a, a page or something. And they weren't meant to be the final solution, but once they're out there, people stop complaining about getting the final solution and then these sort of things sort of take on a life of their own. <laughs> and, you know, you're reminded about them years later and you're like, weren't you supposed to be using this other system? And it's like, Oh no, no, this works all right. And Oh, I'm glad you like it, but it doesn't even run on this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that being said, what is the role of cross platform compatibility at enterprise development? Uh, you know, for the most part, in most uh, businesses, uh, probably none. Uh, most most companies try to standardize. Mm-hmm. And part of standardizing is standardizing on the operating system. And once you've standardized on an operating system, there is no cross-platform. Yeah. Um, if, if at all, if you standardize on a server architecture, like say you have Windows servers, uh, then pretty much uh, you're developing an ASP.NET. And the reason people develop web applications in the first place is so that it, they can fundamentally be cross-platform. So if you have ASP.NET and you have a bunch of different operating systems, you say, look, you have to use these versions of these browsers, and then you don't have to worry about it. Uh, because you know web, web applications are not the most friendly, GUI applications out there, but people write them because they can get to the most audience. And uh, But it's... For the most part, I have seen companies will just say, this is the software we're using. And generally, we don't say, well, we allow this operating system and this operating system and this operating system. You say, we're using Windows version whatever, and you're stuck with it. You know, and, that, and that's the way most companies work, um, to the point that you can actually be at a desk and uh, your terminal isn't your own. You know, Everything's saved on the network, and... Uh, if your computer breaks, they just give you another computer and you log in using your network login and you actually log into your data that was stored off on the network in the first place. And, you know, occasionally there are companies that will blast systems that uh, 
just refresh systems from stored images so that if you installed your favorite version of of a piece of software like iTunes, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's fried. You know, it, it just goes away. Uh, there's group policies in Windows where you can prevent people from installing software at all, which is a standard company practice. You won't you won't let uh, individuals, you know. If, as an individual, you think about a computer, you think about it as a general purpose tool, but companies think about it as a, um, this is a company tool, this is a company resource, you are not allowed to install your own stuff on here, you're not allowed to reformat it and put Red Hat on it, you know, you can't do these things. So, um, for the most part, cross-platform in a a business environment kind of doesn't exist. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, or if it does exist, you know, it, it's a very rare kind of kind of thing. Um, I at work develop on uh, as a Windows developer, have to use Windows all the time. My my personal workstation is actually uh, currently Ubuntu uh, ten zero four, and I use uh, VMware for most of my development. So, mm. but um, are you applying any uh, patterns or practices for your development? Uh, like for example, uh, extreme programming, agile. Do you do like unit testing? Uh, we do unit testing. We have a we have a standard process of you know the the things that are applied to applications before they go out the door. But uh, in terms of agile and and extreme programming and and what is it Scrum and 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 all these various things that exist in the field, we. We don't really implement them. Uh, for the most part, we're a small enough shop. It, it's me and four of the programmers, and I, I'm kind of the, the, the lead programmer. So we're happy enough to get it out the door and working. You know, the the, the client is usually a department or uh, or at least a department head to make happy. And as long as you make that guy happy, you're usually all right. Mm. Um, so for the most part, all those practices that are designed to really sort of de- develop programs in a large programming environment, uh, for the most part, if it's just a couple people, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to work together. Mm. Uh, so you, you take the practices that apply to you. You know, you, the, the idea of, of aspect-oriented uh, extreme programming, of having a, a fairly frequent iteration cycle where you kind of develop and, and produce and, and show the client the end product, you know, to some extent we'll do that because we want people to know that we're actually working but um you know in, ter- in terms of down and dirty let's write a uml and and you know and go through this sort of timeline thing we don't usually you know that stuff takes time to do believe you know it's one of these sort of things where do you want it done now or do you want me to like write the specs up for a week and then we approve those and uh it's been my experience that the people who actually want the software don't read the specs anyway mm-hmm. uh, so we, we we tend to to produce something and show it to the person if they're happy and, and if we can keep everything kind of lined up, we're happy. So all that, uh, all the business practices and best practices, we all do more on an individual basis than on a project management level. Uh, and so far it works out all right. And I think that's for the, for the most part, as far as we're doing our jobs and getting the stuff done, no one really cares what, what, you know, what procedures are in place. Those are what matter to us. Uh, as as developers, you know, developers can look at code and say, "Oh, this is bad code. This is good code." We can look at processes and say, "Oh, this is the you know this is the way it should have been done, or or this is the way it should have been documented." Uh, but from the end user's perspective, they don't care. You know, as long as the software works, they're happy. Mm-hmm. It's it's only people who actually develop software that are concerned about you know, hey, I read this uh, you know in code complete, this is the way it's supposed to go, or clean code described this, and I really agree with it, and and all these things that we 
think are very important are important to us, but at the end of the day, does the program run? Mm, yeah. And, and that's really what counts for the most part. Mm -hmm. Well, um, assuming that you work, you work in a big team, right? Not me and uh, four other guys. Mm. So we have a we have a COBOL programmer, but I'm not sure what he does anymore. So. <laughs> All right. So, uh, how do you manage collaboration on an enterprise project inside the team? If it's uh, you know, like I said, it's me and four other guys. So in terms of large projects, um, you tend to just break up the workflow. So um, I might do. Uh, the database uh, architecture and design the database, and in that case, I'll design the middle tier. I'll design all the uh, all the libraries that talk to the database and and pull back things like data sets and write the data adapters, uh, and that will be my my part of the problem. And then someone else will design the GUI part, you know, and and they'll design all the stuff that talks to that layer, and they'll come to me and say, hey, I need you know, I need this data out in this format, and I'll say, well, use this uh, function and uh, They'll come back to me and say, okay, I've looked at everything you've written and I need to do this and I can't seem to figure out how. And I'll say, okay, fine, and I'll go write that piece. You know, And for the most part, if it's just you and, and three or four other guys, you can pretty much sort of sit all in a room together and figure out what you need. Mm. Um, so that hasn't really been an issue in terms of collaboration and you know, and all the things like source management. And when it's, when it's a small group of people, those things are less important than actually just communicating with one another. So, mm. uh, so you mentioned source management, but what source control systems are you using? Uh, we are using the very classic copy it to another folder. <laughs> <laughs> so no SVN, no, uh, GIF. No. We have a central repository for all the current production code. We have a central repository for all the current development versions. When an individual coder works on the piece that they're working on, uh, they they publish by copying the new version out to current and taking the the version that was there before and putting it in history. And you know, we all carry on. Like I, like I said, you got just a handful of people. It really doesn't matter that much as long as everyone you know, has a copy of the functioning code. And in terms of writing code, if you can design from the ground up the modules, you know, if you can say, okay, you're working on this bit and I'm working on this bit and you're working on the other bit, and they're all well-defined modules, uh, source control is simply a matter of, um, I'm keeping track of what I've written. This is the version that did this. This is the new version that does this. Um, yeah, source control is nice, but now you have to actually train people to use it properly. Um, so I've used it personally and I've used it for my stuff, but in terms of, uh, enterprise development and having the entire team use the same source control stuff, we've tried visual source safe. We, we tried something called a PSVC in the past. We've tried a number of the ones out there and for the most part, they get used when people are forced to use them. But when push comes to shove, you say, well, hey, where was the last working version of that? Oh, I got it on my hard drive, which people aren't supposed to do. They're supposed to put it on the network. So, <laughs> so uh, then how do you organize the planning of an enterprise project? Because they're like, uh, usually there are end-tier projects when there's like lots and lots of components, like the database, the client part, the server part. Like it all should be like planned together, I think, like before the actual development. So how do you do that? Well, that that's when it's a lot like the the best practices you describe, like the the extreme programming and the aspect oriented. You, you know, the first part of any project is 
you get every everyone in the room together who who is interested in the new project and you have them tell you the story you know you have them say well this is what i want this is what i want to happen and generally when you first meet with people and you talk what you want they have no idea what they want they just know that they want this thing to happen and they want it to be on a computer Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's your job as the IT people to figure out how to make that happen. You know, so the, the, the end user doesn't know what the database is. They don't know, they don't know if they want, uh, they might know if they want it as a web application or if they want it as a win app, win app, but they may not know to say that, you know, you have to talk to them and they say, well, you know, I want to be able to highlight stuff and I want to be able to go here and I, I want to be able to out, print out the reports and have page numbers and, you know, and, and they describe to you all their requirements. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to you, as the person who actually knows what all tools are available, to figure out how to implement those requirements. So you know you get together with the people who actually need the program written. You get their, you get their statements. You get the, what they want from you, and then you kind of, sort of send them away, and everyone gets together and figures out, okay, what do we need, to do with what we have already that can actually do this. Mm-hmm. If you have all the pieces already, you know you have a a number of database servers out there, you have web servers, you have, uh, you know, or you know you're going to deploy it on their machine, so you, you, you know you're going to do a rich client or a WinForms. Um, you figure out what tools you're going to use, and you start mocking something up. And sometimes it's as simple as just saying, let's just give them, a fr- uh, you know, an empty framework and see if they'll approve it. And uh, the danger you run into then is you show someone that lo- something that looks like a working program, they're like, oh, great, you're finished. And generally you're not. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, you, you have to talk to people. One of the things, you know, the, the popular conception of, of programmers is you get to hide in a small room and no one ever talks to you. And, uh, to some extent, if you're just writing a block of code or you're just writing a library, you can do that. But, uh, to actually get projects done, you do have to sort of come out of the cave and talk to people. And, uh, you have to talk to people a lot. You have to make sure they're happy because people aren't going to talk to you about technical stuff. You're, you're the technical person. You have to talk to them about people stuff and sort of translate it into te- into technical ease. Um, so you talk to people and you say, hey, what do you want? What do you need it to do? And generally people won't tell you if something's not working. They'll, they'll, they'll bitch if they can't do anything at all, but you'll come to someone like six months later and they'll say, oh yeah, I tried to run this reporting part and that didn't work. So I ran these three other reports and then I like put them in an Excel sheet and figure it out. And you're like, why didn't you tell me? Well, you know, I got it to work. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you have, to, you have to talk to people and find out what they're doing and how their work processes work. And very often what programmers will do in an enterprise is they'll take some existing work process and they'll streamline it. You know, and, and as programmers, it's your job to sort of see how you can streamline stuff that people are already doing. Uh, and very often people get used to doing things in a very archaic sort of convoluted way. You know, you'll find that Oh yeah, the way we the way we do this every week is we we put it in a spreadsheet and we email it to finance and then they cut and paste it and uh, yeah sometimes things get lost but it, it usually works. And you're like, well, wouldn't it be better if we put that all in a database and you had it so that everyone could look at it at the same time? It's, oh yeah, that would be great. Can you do that? <laughs> you know, and that's that's sort of where you're at. But you need to you need to talk it through with people and find out what they need um, from the post storytelling phase, uh, it's up to you to figure out how to make that happen. So you look at the resources you have, you look at, uh, uh, do we have this information that they actually want to use? Sometimes you need to ha- have people enter data that didn't exist before. You know, people will often say, 
oh yeah, I want this and I want it to, you know, do all this wonderful stuff and, and give me all this information. Sometimes that information doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And very often when you explain to people they need to enter that information, suddenly they're not interested in that uh, functionality and they move on to something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting point. But that's kind of, I think it's tied to the kind of like people's psychology. They don't want to, uh, sometimes some people just don't want to put the extra effort in it. People want computers to be the magic bullet. They always will want this. They they say, I want a program to do this. And what they're really saying is, I want a program to do my job. And you give them a program that will do their job. But they still have to actually, you know, use the program. And they're very often disappointed that it doesn't read their mind. You know, and it's, and it's your job to explain to them, no, computers are not omniscient. You know, they will not read your mind. They don't know what you're thinking. Um, your frustration with them is, is they didn't figure out just by you clicking a single mouse click that you want it filled out with this particular employee's information. You need to actually work with the program. And if it's doing something you, you feel is counterintuitive or that you feel should be done automatically for you, explain that, communicate that to me and I'll figure out how to make it work. And if it's impossible, I'll explain to you why it's impossible, you know, and that's, but people who often come to you with asking for a computer program, what they're really saying is, I don't want to do this job anymore. You do it for me. Mm. Uh, and they're often disappointed when you come back to them with, with the, a product and you say, okay, here it is. And they're like, well, it, but it, I still now have to do work. It's like, well, sure you do. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, they expected that uh, the, the magic computer would do the work for them. And it, of course that doesn't really work, but, uh, you do as much as you can. Ideally, when, you, when you're working with people and you're writing programs, the, the thing you want to hear is you want to hear, oh, it's so much easier. You know, if you can get someone to tell you, oh, it's so much easier than it was before, then you've done your job. If you can get someone to say, oh, yeah, it works fine. We've never had to call you. You've done your job. You know, you, whenever you write a program, you always try to do it in such a way that uh, whenever you hear back about it, it's, always, it's working fine. And you never hear anyone say, oh, it broke. And if you never hear back, or if you only hear back, yeah, it's okay, you've probably done it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you see, it's like all tied to basically what uh, Scott Hanselman once mentioned. It's like a mental model. So when a person sees a program, he puts the data, he like enters a username, and then it goes to like a the fourth dimension. <laughs> he has like no oh. idea that's a separate universe out there. It just oh, absolutely. Yeah, and people people can't expect to be expected to understand how computers work. You you have to present them. If you think about everything that we use, every thing that you're used to seeing on computers, like you know now we're used to seeing web browsers, it's all an abstraction. You know, folders don't really exist in computers. Directories are another abstraction. Files themselves are an abstraction. They're all things that have been created by programmers to make computers more approachable, to make things more understandable. You know, you call a file that has text in it a document because there's a document in the physical world, and I, I can somehow relate to that. Um, you'll very often find that that first meeting where you meet with someone to design software, and they tell you their story, and they tell you they want this to happen. And say they want uh, uh, something that they're physically filling in by hand. They want it to automatically fill in and then store in a central repository, which is pretty common. And then, but they don't give you any specifics. So you write a program for them. You'll find the more you have something solid to put in front of someone, the more someone can actually sit down and actually start working with the program, that's when they actually start talking to you because now they can point at it and say, hey, I want a button here that does this, and I want this to be blue, and I, you know, I want all these things to happen. 
but initially they don't have anything to touch on. So it's all very abstract, you know, and as a programmer, you can imagine from talking to someone what that program will look like, but they don't know. They just know they want something to happen. And it's not until you actually put something in front of someone that you're actually going to get feedback. And it's very frustrating because you figure I'm almost done. Mm-hmm. And, and really what happens is, is that when you present the product to someone, you're not almost done because now they'll actually start talking. Whereas before they were quiet and accepting and, and nodded when you showed them stuff and said, Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> but when they actually sit down to use it, that's when the real work begins. Cause now you have to really sort of deal with what, what their issues are and what they expected. And you may often find that, you know, from one meeting where everything was okay and, and you decided to go in a certain way, um, now that they're actually using it, oh no, no, we don't want it to work that way. We want it to go some other direction. And, you know, you, you can't get frustrated. It's never their fault. You, you, we just misunderstood you and you kind of carry on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to wrap this up, uh, what would be your advice for, well, let's say for beginner developers, for students who want to get into enterprise development? Well, let's assume they have experience with client development, like basic, like Windows applications, mm-hmm. web applications. What would be your advice for people who have this experience, but they want to dive in enterprise? Well, fundamentally, what you must have in almost all enterprise applications is you must have a good understanding of databases because there's no, there are very few programs that are written in a vacuum. They always have to talk to some centralized database. Um, so they'll ta- have to talk to a database. They'll have to talk to, uh, usually have to talk to some kind of authentication mechanism like uh, an LDAP server, an Active Directory server. Um, so you don't think that you can kind of go your whole life and not learn SQL because you're going to have to do it. Uh, and it's probably one of the few most common languages out there that you can actually use. Um, so SQL is, is sort of a must. Uh, but the other thing is just, you know, be open to the idea that you're going to have to learn new stuff whether you like it or not. You know, the skill set you have now is not the one you're going to have 10 years from now. Uh, you have to, you know, be willing to adapt to the environment that you find yourself in and use the tools that you find yourself, uh, you know, using. So if you want to develop in a business environment, you have to realize that you're going to deal with people, which is often the last thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to have to, you know, deal with, you know, you might be the best Python programmer in the world. You might be the an open source Linux advocate. And, you know, you might feel that you should be able to use Python in your Windows development because, of course, you can use it in Windows. Um, but if your boss says, no, we use C Sharp, then you're stuck using C Sharp. You know, you, you have to be open to the idea that you're going to be using, you may be using tools that you don't really like <laughs> mm. uh, because that's the way it works. So, so you have to be open to the idea of using using all tools that are available out there. I mean, I have written stuff in Visual Basic. I don't like Visual Basic. You know, I, it's what is, you know, what is open to you to use. So for the most part, you know, if you want to develop in a business environment, just understand that your favorite language, your favorite tool set, your favorite toys um, may not be an option. And, and as long as you know that going in and you're flexible enough to learn what is an option, uh, you'll probably be all right. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was Brad McNamara. He's an enterprise developer and he is Bavgay on uh, Dreaming Code. Thank you very much, Brad. It was a great discussion on enterprise development. I really enjoyed it and I hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. All right. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, hopefully someone will listen. Oh, sure will. <laughs>